It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with the fantasy baseball Zen master. Laura Michaels is next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson. The bullpen. Flying in from left center field. Dancing. Hugging and celebrating for all you Giants fans, wherever you are. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 29th coincidentally show number 29 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davich, your host, and we'll be talking with the fantasy baseball Zen master, Laura Michaels, about patience, the wussiness of today's starting pitchers, instant replays, keys to success, facts and flukes, and much more. We'll also have these commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about hit percentage for pitchers. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon talks about Dodgers pitching prospect Zach Lee. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And we open our show, as always, on our Tuesday Tout Edition with our feature interview. Laura Michaels, the fantasy baseball Zen master, writes for MastersBall.com, KFFL.com, USA Today, and ChandlerPark.com. And he's a great guest here on the show. Laura Michaels, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you because you're kind of an interesting guy, you know. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, coming from you, I'll take that as a double compliment. Uh, before we get started, I always like to ask our experts how your teams are doing in your expert leagues. I know you play in Tout and some others. Um, I, I, I do, although, I, you know, like most of us, I run away from the word uh, expert. But actually, my team in Tout is doing pretty well. I'm in first place there, uh, which is which is really, really fun. I'm in fifth place in labor, um, and, uh, which is National League, and or at least I'm playing in the National League in in, in that uh, setup. And uh, but uh, again, I have a very good team. And, and as over the weekend, there was actually ten points separated first and tenth place. So I think that's going to be a pretty pretty tight race. And I'm actually I just made a trade, so I'm envisioning a dogfight between uh, Derek Van Riper and me. Uh, XFL, which is I wrote recently is the hardest league of all. Uh, I'm in last place. I'm trying to make some other trades. I've been rebuilding for the last two years. And, and I have a lot of really, really good prospects, young guys that are just starting up. Well, I've got Cespedes, but, you know, I got hit by Matt Moore being out for the year. Uh, but I've got Mike Zanino. I've got Nick Castellanos. And so I, I think I just it's just another year of them getting some sea legs and getting a couple of um, bangers behind them. And, uh, Hopefully that will change the complexion of my team, but that is a really hard league. 
It is a really hard league, and we should point out for listeners who might not be familiar, the XFL is a keeper league, unlike Tout and Labor, and uh, therefore you have the opportunity to rebuild over a, over a time span. How long do you think it should take for you to rebuild a team, assuming that you had a good run, then you fall off as the usual pattern? How long does it take you to build back up? Um, I, I usually figure about two to three years in a keeper league. Um, that's how long I've been added in the XFL with this rebuild. And basically, I just wasn't getting anywhere doing the things that used to work for me in mixed leagues. So, I, you know, one of the things I, I think I, I tweeted to somebody the other day that one of the things I always try to do is look for some angle that nobody else has figured out, some path that they discarded. And so I've been working that in the league, or at least I worked, I, I, I mean, I, I, I left $40 on the table on purpose after the draft uh, uh, three years ago um, with, with a clear clear idea. You know, I, I got Albert Pujols for $60 and Roy, Roy Halliday for $45, and, and then basically that was it for my draft. Everybody else, I waited till the end and got $1 players that I thought would be good eventually. And I got Kyle Seeger, I got Leonis Martin, so they're... They're pretty good and, and reasonably priced still, but once the season started, I traded Pujols and, uh, and Holiday right away, and I got, you know, Yonder Alonzo, Matt Moore, Yolanda Cespedes. I got a bunch of good young guys, which was my intention. It's just they need to all coalesce, and I'm really clear, depending on power like that, you, you really, whether you like it or not, you have to get an Adrian Gonzalez, you have to get a Matt Holiday, you have to get a few guys that are just, you know, are going to go out and, at 30, 25, 30 knocks, whether you like it or not. So, uh, that, but, but two or three years, I've, I've been rebuilding in my Stratomatic League, which is a 30-team league with strict usage rules. So it's, it's very, very deep uh, and very, very tight. I always say this is the kind, that's the kind of league where you've got to have Paul Bacco. Um, and uh, it's been a couple of years there, and I'm, we're going into the season this year, and I have a very nice team after making a bunch of trades. I'm I'm, you know, have a, a good lineup. I have a five-man rotation. I've got a closer. I've got a bullpen. And, and in that league, we're allowed to keep 28 guys. So you can really, really build a roster. Um, it's a sim league, so it's based on the previous season. So this year, for example, Sonny Gray and uh, Marcelo Zuna, they were new. They're new. So we, they, were, they were draft picks this last February. So we won't see the likes of George Springer on a roster till next year, right? But uh, I'm 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 really pretty happy. I've I've got I should have a good team after taking it in the chin for the last two and a half years. So, Laura, you mentioned uh, that you're looking for the paths not taken, or maybe paths that used to be taken that aren't anymore, and trying to find a competitive edge. Did you succeed? What kind of uh, what kind of findings did you have? Well, um, I'm, I mean, I've always kind of done that. I I. I, I I didn't realize when I was little that I was contrary. I thought I was just following my own path. But uh, I think contrary, you know, I was a Dodger fan in Northern California when everybody else was a Giants fan. But, for, for example, my first year in Tout was the first year that, uh, that Tout went 5x5, five five and everybody went, said, you know, the, the common uh, talk was that saves weren't, were going to be devalued because strikeouts were now part of the equation. And I sort of thought, oh, that's stupid. A, you know, a category is a category. So if everybody else, that means closers are going to be cheaper. I'm going to grab two closers as early as I can, build up a cushion because everybody else will not care about closers, trade one of them, and, and basically work around that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll never forget Peter Kreutzer telling me after the draft that they, everybody was kind of disappointed 
that they thought I was a, a, a shrewder player, well, I, I ended up winning. So, I mean, it worked. So <laughs> that was the last of that. In fact, Jason Gray said he couldn't, I, I think I finished last in batting average, and I carried Chris Widger as my DH for half the season, and I still won. And Jason just kind of scratched his head and said, I don't know, there's some kind of zen going on with that guy, meaning me. So that's where the Zen Master stuff all came from. But in, in XFL, it was, it was pulling that, you know, that league is deep and people draft. You know, you uh, Darvish was, was drafted for somebody's minor league roster two years before he even signed in the United States. So people are on to everybody, so it's very hard to get a prospect. So I thought by, by throwing the draft as I did, by overspending on Pujols and Halliday, trading them off and then picking up doing bottom feeding them, that that would be a way for me to get a jump on getting uh, a, a core of prospects which worked. The other thing I was, I was really hoping for that worked really well is by leaving that much money on the table and by spending that much off the top because Pujols and Holiday were early nominees, that it really messed around the baseline of what people were paying. So it, it, every, it, you know, the, the, the dollar values were just all over the map and everybody was confused by it, and, which I was really, really happy about it. You know, the whole part of the idea is, I think, during a draft, the more that you can disrupt and confuse, and, and I don't mean it in an irritating way, but the more you can, can you know, it's like, it's, it's like a, there was a really great article um, that, um, in the, uh, about Mark Burley that Gabe Kapler wrote uh, uh, not, uh, not long ago, uh, last week. I can't remember where it was, but one of the things he said was, you know, Burley has his, he, he averages like three to four seconds less than every other pitcher between pitches. And, you know, basically it was pointed that he knows that once the batter calls time, he's got him. So that he's got it into the hitter's head and, and, and that he owns it. So he owns the hitter. And, you know, he's right. That means that, that, that means that the hitter's thinking about what he's doing. He's not thinking about hitting. He's, he's conf- you know, uh, confused, disrupted. His thought process isn't clean. And, and, and the pitcher's going to have the advantage. And he doesn't have to throw 95 to gain that advantage. So I really think it's analogous during the draft, during the season, that whatever you could do to distract everybody else in a, in a, in a friendly, benign way, not in a vicious way, is it's one more... It's just more focus for you. It's less less strain. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with the Zen Master of Fantasy Baseball, Laura Michaels from MastersBall.com. And Laura, in a recent Masters Ball column, you noted that as recently as 1980, and certainly long before that, the top starting pitchers in Major League Baseball routinely went 300 plus innings. Last season, the IP leader was Adam Wainwright at 241 and two thirds, and only 36 pitchers even got over 200 innings. What do you think is going on with this huge drop in starting pitcher innings? I, I think we're wimps. I think human beings have become wimps. I mean, what was it? Brett, Brett Anderson broke his finger swinging a bat because it stung. Just, I don't know what's wrong with human beings anymore. I, I, actually, I do, think, I do think a lot of it is just specialty, that, that we, you know, we really look for pitchers to throw 100 innings and give every, I mean 100 pitches and give all they have for that, and then there's, they know... There's going to be um, a relief core and a closer coming after them, so they. I think that has a little bit to do with it. Um, I think. I actually think because there's so much emphasis on year-round training, 
that on one hand, while it helps build us up, on the other hand, I think it, it, it makes our musculature maybe a little tighter um, and, you know, a little more subject or not, not as flexible or maybe a little more subject to injury. Um, I, I think that could be it. Um, and, and my friend, uh, Lord, my, my mate Lord Zola, he, he thinks it's, it's just because of the number of off-speed or, or uh, throwing split fingers and, and hard, hard stuff that, that, that torques out your arms that he just thinks that, that the, the way the pitching is developed, that that, that, that kind of plays in. It's, you, know, it, it, you throw like Dontrell Willis, you're asking for an arm injury is, I think, what, what, what the bottom line is. But I don't really know, uh, you know, Patrick, when we were kids, and I don't mean to be a grumpy old man, but when we were kids, you know, there were no ham eight bones and there were no rotator cuffs, and everybody pitched 280 innings in a four-man rotation. So I don't, I don't know what. And, and they, and ball players, unless they were stars, they sold major home appliances at Sears in the off season. So I don't, I don't really know what happened, but, but I wish I did. Then, then maybe I'd make a lot of money telling people. But I think it's fairly obvious that the uh, the trend towards specialty pitchers, uh, uh, especially uh, left-handed out specialists, loogies as they're known. Uh, Joe Sheehan had a pretty interesting comment on this uh, a couple of days ago in his uh, newsletter where he said that the uh, the whole design of a pitching staff has changed, and f- in his opinion, for the worse, in that you have Major League Baseball bringing guys in and they tell them, just throw as hard as you can, as long as you can, in those middle inning, seventh, sixth, seventh uh, inning setup roles, and when your arm falls off, we'll just throw you aside and grab another guy who can do pretty much the same thing. Because at max effort, pitchers maintain an advantage, I think. And in the olden days, as we like to call them, when a guy was pitching 300 innings, it wasn't a maximum effort all the time. They were smarter about getting guys out rather than than just getting strikeouts. And, uh, and as a result, you have fewer opportunities, as you suggest, for a starting pitcher to make it into the later innings of a game, game in and game out, because he's going to be brought out at the first sign of trouble and or they're going to be innings pitch limits and so forth. I don't know. I would dearly love to see somebody get out there and throw 290 innings again or 310 innings again, because if nothing else, boy, would it ever disrupt fantasy baseball. Yeah, that's for sure. But this way, it's, it's a nice segue back into Mark Burley, you know, which is, you don't, if you're smart, you don't have to throw that hard all the time. You know, there's, I, I, I think back when one of my favorite interviews I ever did was with Kenny Rogers when he pitched for the athletics. And I said, when did you learn to pitch? Because remember, he was a very hard swiveler when he came up with, uh, with Texas. And he said, my second season with the Rangers one day, I decided I was going to throw every pitch as hard as I could. And I said, how did it go? And he went, in the second inning when they took me out, when we were down eight runs with runners on second and third, I figured out it didn't work. And, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that. But I think players have a hard time understanding that or grasping that. What got me here, you know, they, it's hard. baseball you have to adjust, and I think it's very difficult to embrace that adjustment because baseball is so muscle memory rooted that, that you – want to continue to do what you learned, what you were taught, and what has made you successful in the first place. So adjusting is, 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 is very hard, I think, harder than we think. I also wonder if there's maybe something to the, uh, the fact that 
especially good pitchers tend to be brought up to the major leagues a little sooner than they used to be. Uh, There's, of course, more slots open than there were before expansion and so forth. And as a result, you have guys who are coming into the major leagues being asked to pitch to major league hitters at age 21, 22, where ordinarily they would have come up at age 24, 25 and had some opportunities to be uh, to develop the musculature and strength that come with physical maturity. And uh, I, I look back at guys who, who come up and, and they, they get subjected to these strains so early in their careers, and it doesn't really surprise me that a Matt Harvey ends up blowing out his elbow in his first or second year in the big leagues. It's, it's true, and also, you know, it used to be, you know, as, as you alluded to, when, when guys would come up at 24 or 25, that, that their last proving ground was Triple A. And really, AAA is just a taxi squad now for, you know, for if somebody gets hurt, here we can plug them in. The real bullet bites the bone level is AA, <clears throat> and that's where all those 20, 21-year-olds are playing and facing each other. And you could be dominant. Obviously, the adjustment at AA is, to me, is the big one, but it's such a huge jump from being 21 and dominating AA to being 21 and just trying to make your way through the majors. It's it's a, it's a very big difference and a big jump. Laura, you're not a fan of the instant replay rule I, I read recently. How come? You know, I, I, for one, I think umpires, for the most part, do a really good job. For two, I think the good breaks and the bad breaks for both teams work out even over the long haul. You know, it, at least umpire call, um, umpire arbited uh, uh, close calls. That every, every, you know, every fan has gotten, had their team... You know, the the victim of a bad call or the uh, uh, the benefactor or you know of, of a good call or of a bad call that that happens to everybody and and I really like the human element for for one thing for two as we've seen with the instant replay and and that that it, it, it just because they have it on tape doesn't mean that they quote call it right and uh, you know I just think it adds a layer of frustration that. You just just call it on the field and be done with it. And and I don't really. It's not so much that I mind the time delay, although I do think that kind of disrupts the flow of the game, because that is essential to me, to me in baseball. Part of the fluidity is where you get you can't. It's hard to get into a groove when there's a two and a half minute stall, although that's not that much time. But you know, as we've seen, there it, there's still subjectivity to third-party people looking at film from different angles trying to figure out what exactly happened. And I don't think it helps. I, I think it's just much ado about nothing. And just, just forget about it. Let the, uh, You pay the umpires to be there and make a decision. And I've heard all the arguments about, yes, we want to get it right. And yes, we do want to get it right. And people aren't perfect. And just accept the fact. And it's part of the I hate to say part of the charm or zen or whatever of the game that you have good breaks and you have get bad breaks and you know we was robbed is there for a reason has been said for a reason just just let go and 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 look at the game forget about the other stuff. Well, I'll say this of the replays I've seen, most of them have been pretty cut and dried and haven't taken that long. I think the average length of a replay is about ninety seconds. And uh, I noticed uh, baseballsavant.com has a very detailed database of the challenges, and through April twenty first. 
The uh, challenge rate was about 41% successful, which is indicates that the umpires are doing a relatively decent job. But on force plays, more than half of the force plays being called and challenged, the umpires are wrong. Half the calls, Lore. More than half of them they're getting wrong. That's not an occasional problem. And I'll and I'll I'll also say about the occasional problem. I was watching when Kansas City and St. Louis were playing, and the umpire made an easily corrected mistake that cost a team a World Series. And that's not to me. That's not an acceptable. Oh well, we was robbed kind of situation. No, I, I understand that. On the other hand, it happens. You know, it's happened for for a hundred years, and and I think a lot of the things on the first plays is, is you know is, is, it means like the neighborhood play has gone away, and. That that's a pretty radical change from uh, the, the the neighborhood play was always there. So if 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 it's it's just funny to me. I mean that's seriously changing the dynamic of the game by by removing something. Uh, uh, it's not Josh Reddick. Josh Donaldson has gotten you know nailed between first and second twice on uh, already this year on odd plays where the ball was hit to the outfield and. You know, there was a transfer issue, and he got forced out at second base, and he's standing in between bases, like, throwing up his hands, like, what am I supposed to do? What's the call? And that's not good either. So, uh, it, and it is, his argument was, look, you taught me to play the game this way for my whole life, and all of a sudden now I'm not supposed to play it that, that way anymore. That, it's not that easy to just change. So, and they're also talking about changing the interpretation of the possession, the, the transfer Rule now, which I think is really crazy. I, I, if they're going to change it, wait till the end of the year and at least let let and keep it level for all all teams that were victimized. Then everybody gets victimized the same. I I, I don't understand that. Well, I agree with you. They should not make any kind of rule change in the middle of the season. That's for sure. But the neighborhood play is not subject to review. It hasn't changed at all. And I saw that Josh Donaldson play at least one of them where he got hung up and the problem wasn't a replay. The problem was that nobody on the field, none of the umpires would make a call. And 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 whether there's replay or whether there's not, if the umpire refuses to make a call and a guy ends up getting forced at second because nobody will tell him whether the ball was trapped or not trapped, but having an umpire just standing there with his hands in his pockets not doing anything, that's not a replay issue. That's just bad umpiring. Yeah, but I think whether that we like it or not, part of it is that they're reinter they're they're conscious that it, things could get overruled, and they're looking at it, going, "Well, what which which way is it?" I, I think they're as confused as we are, or at least New York is. So <laughs> I don't know. I just I just like it. You know, it's a game played by human beings. Let human beings judge it and be done with it. Forget that. Tweak other stuff, but leave that alone. Well, uh, I'll just say this. I think the game should be decided by human beings, but they shouldn't be wearing blue. Uh, as a traditionalist, uh, moving on to fantasy lore, what do you think of the new shorter-term fantasy formats like weekly games and daily games and monthly games? I think they're kind of fun. Um, I've, I've played a little bit in the daily stuff. I do do. Um, I, I have a couple of monthly teams at Chandler Park, and they're pretty fun. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the, the thing is, and, and maybe this is kind of, Contradictory to what I said about uh, about human beings judging human beings, but you know the, the the nature of things has changed, and and I I think it 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 just that's the way things go. Is you, there's always there's, ever since the first fantasy leagues came up, there's been wrinkles and switches and ways that that you know people have tweaked the league to their own league to satisfy what they see or what they think or what they want to do. So I I. I just think this is a variation on that, and I think it's kind of fun. Um, I think 
you know, the, I hate to say younger people like a little more instant gratification. Um, it is along the, the, the thing I hear about most people saying that they don't want to, they have a hard time playing fantasy ball. It's such a long season and a long grind, and it's hard to pay attention. If this is what gets people interested and makes it more fun for them, then that's fine. I totally understand that. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to having more time to mess with that stuff uh, starting next year when my time shifts a lot. In your KFFL.com column, Tumbling Dice, you advised, as many of us fantasy experts so often do, owners need to be patient, especially with their elite players who are off to slow starts, and that's certainly sound advice. But how long should we have to wait before we decide that the what has appeared to be an anomaly has become a, an actual trend or an actual situation and make some kind of change? Um, well, it kind of depends, I think. But, I mean, if I paid $35 for Prince Fielder, I'm riding him. You know, he's on my roster. He's going out there every day whether he likes it or not. And I'm going to try to get my money's worth. And if he fails, then I have, a, you know, he just had a bad year. That just happens sometimes. If it's somebody more marginal or you see a way that you could trade Fielder to, to make something work to your advantage, maybe I, I, I would look towards sort of the middle end of May because usually by June – you should know whether your team's going to be competitive. The numbers should settle out. And, yeah, I mean, it's not impossible by any means to go from the bottom of the pack to the top of the pack. There's still four months left. But by the, by the time two months have passed, if you're still mired and struggling, and, and uh, then it's time to try to do something. And I, I, that, that's kind of the bottom line. Toward, towards Memorial, you know, Memorial Day is that first big benchmark, and I would look around there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. And Lore, you also wrote a column recently for Ron Chandler's new site. You mentioned Chandler Park. And in that article, you argued that the keys to a successful team on the diamond, in sim games, or in straight fantasy baseball lie within whip and on-base percentage. Could you expand on that? It's an interesting concept. If you're a good hitter, generally, if you have a good on-base percentage, unless you're, you know, was it uh, Rusty Becker? Was that, was that it? Rusty or Randy? Now I can't remember his name. He played for the Twins. But then he played for the A's in the end. Unless you're one of those guys who, who walks a lot and can't hit for average, for the most part, getting on base is the key. If you can get on base, then the chances you will score a run, steal a base, knock in a run are greater. That something will happen. And guys with good, a good eye, good on-base numbers, tend to be better hitters also. They're more selective. They're, they get better, better hitters counts. And that bodes success. So if you're a hitter, the more you can get on base, the more successful the corollary is that you are going to be, the more runs you'll score. The, the antithetical point to that is for a pitcher, the more runners you can keep off base, the greater the percentages you'll be successful because if there aren't guys on base, they can't score. That, it's very simple. Um, you can give up. You could be Jack Morris and give up a bunch of solo homers and still be a, a successful pitcher. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's, uh, and to me it's so simple and so obvious that, you know, keep runners off base, you'll probably be successful. Get on base, you'll probably be successful. 
I agree entirely, and uh, I'll go one step further. I like to look at a pitcher's walks almost more than anything else. A guy who's a high walk pitcher uh, is is the kind of guy I really do like to avoid because a, a walk just leads to all kinds of damage. It raises pitch counts. I mean, if, you, if a guy gives up two hits on the first three pitches of the inning, he's not pitching himself out of the seventh inning in the second. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally agree. I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, secondary to, to, to basically walks on base whips, I look at, for both hitters and pitchers, I look at strikeouts to walks, and I look at strikeouts to inning pitch, innings pitched, and for hitters, I look at um, strikeouts to walks, and I look at extra base hits to base hits also. But, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I know, Laura, you're a, you live in the Bay Area. You're a fan of the athletics. And, uh, of course, over the years, that team has developed a moneyball reputation for innovation and for really solid managerial shrewdness. And I'm wondering, it seems like they haven't really popped up doing anything unusual along those lines lately. Are we missing something? Are the A's uh, still using kind of out-of-the-box thinking or innovative thinking to, to stay on top of their division as they uh, have done the last couple of years? Well, I think one thing is they're very good at picking situational players, and, and generally, kind of, you know, it's kind of like my, my fantasy style is just sort of looking for the discards of other uh, of other teams. Or they're you know they're they're very good at um, exploiting the island of lost players, shall we say? They're very good at that. Um, I think the and, and they are a very good team this year. They're, I, I think they've been. I, I think they still might be underrated because they don't have a real star, and they might have even been underrated now because they lost Jared Parker and A.J. Griffin's out, so those are two of their, their incumbent five rotation members that are, and I think, uh, I, I think to a degree people thought, well, that's it for them, but they're very good at replacing their parts, uh, number one. Number two, they're good at platooning, and I think that one of the things they've really got going for them this year is so much flexibility in that Brandon Moss can play first base, he can play the outfield. Uh, Alberto Callaspo can play second base, he can play third base, he can play first base, he can DH. Jed Lowry can play second base or he can play shortstop. Um, and so, you know, Derek Norris can catch and he can play first base. And I think they've really hedged a lot of problems by having not, you know, uh, uh, maybe their everyday, the level of their everyday players is not quite as stellar as the Red Sox or um, other teams that spend more money on one hand. On the other hand, I think their bench is so versatile and, and solid that it makes up for a, they could basically put nine good guys out there, pretty good guys, every day. There are very few holes, and I think that's probably what they've been exploiting and has been working for them the last few years. Yeah, I'm always looking for, for teams that are doing that, and I know guys who play Stratomatic who are in a lot of ways, kind of leading Major League Baseball in trying these kinds of things to great effect. Although in the case of especially platooning players to uh, positional advantage by um, you know, putting left-handers in where they can do well against right-handed pitching and vice versa, uh, Earl Weaver was doing that 35 years ago and, and playing for the three-run homer as well, uh, waiting, you know, on-base percentage plus home runs equals lots of wins. Uh, maybe, maybe there's nothing so much new in the game, but it's always interesting to watch the A's. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals also uh, seem to have a real good handle on what they should be doing out there, Boston as well. I think, uh, and tell me if, if you think this makes sense, but for a fantasy owner, it's not a bad idea to watch what the really good, long-term successful franchises are doing at the major league level. Oh, yeah. I think that's a, 
I, you know, it, it's so funny because in, in, in one hand, there's no way that fantasy, you know, fantasy baseball is a game, I always say, especially to people who get really, really so into it that, that, that they kind of lose track of their lives. That fantasy baseball is a game based upon a game where we watch a guy try to hit a ball with a stick. So in that sense, it's, it's pretty basic and it's kind of silly. But, but to think that you're ever going to actually replicate in a, you know, what, what really happens is, is it's just not going to happen. That said, they're still so analogous for one another that the chances you'll have a lucky break or a bad break on your team or that somebody comes in at the wrong time and you, you lose a win for one of your pitchers, it, it, it's almost the same. So I, I do think, I mean, I, that's why I like to play a lot of different formats, too. It's just like watching the game. There's always something you can learn by observing. And, uh, you know, there's always a wrinkle. There's always an angle. It, it, it almost leads back to kind of the question you asked about the daily games, that there's always something new ahead, and a smart or prudent person will keep an eye out to see which, what that path is so they can try to exploit it or at least appreciate it, I guess. Any other teams on the... Uh organizational value chart that, that you would add to the Cardinals, A's, and Red Sox? Well, I, I would put Tampa. Tampa there. Tampa's very, very good at retooling and keeping oh, yeah. Yeah. keeping some consistency up, for sure, and also keeping their payroll down. Um, I will say the teams that I'm really enjoying watching these days are Seattle, Houston, and um, and San Diego, because I, I get a lot, maybe it's age thing, but I get a lot, because I enjoy rebuilding. It's, it's tough, but uh, it's very satisfying when it works. And I like watching teams who are willing to, and Houston being a really good example, where they've just said, you know, we know we're going to take it in the, in the nose for a few years, but this is our plan. We're going to build prospects. We're going to get a bunch of good young guys, and in two or three years we're going to have a very good young competitive team. And if they're all together for a year, year and a half in the majors, we're going to be very good, and I think that I think Tampa proved that that is a good business plan, and so I really enjoy that. I think San Diego's doing that. I think Seattle was doing that, and then they kind of got waylaid signing uh, Robinson Cano. I'm not sure. I really I like Robinson Cano, but I again I I think they had the the crux of a rebuild there, and I, I I'm not sure if they monkeyed with their mojo. And, and Kansas City has done all right too, but. Again, I'm not sure about trading Will Myers. That might have. I'm not sure if that helped them over the long run. Yeah, and I wonder about Kansas City. I think their field manager is going to cost them some games. And and I know that uh, one of the big things that Tampa Bay did right was hiring Joe Madden. I think that that doesn't get enough credit. Uh, the guy's obviously a really smart guy, willing to play those positional things and look at ways of playing the game that are out of the ordinary, and some other managers not so much. Are there any organizations you look at and think that's exactly how I wouldn't want to run my team? How I wouldn't? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I sort of think to, uh, to, to Washington Redskins and, and George Allen kind of stuff. Uh, you know, well, the Dodgers, the Dodgers are, are maybe a good example. That I, I, just, I don't think that it builds success to throw a lot of money and just try to you know, grab as many stars as you can. I, I realize the Yankees did that to a degree. The Red Sox have done that, and the Dodgers did it. But, and the Yankees were, were arguably successful at it. However, if you look at the Yankees' best years, um, over the last couple of decades, it, the, the real core of their teams were Andy Pettit, um, they were Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, um, they were guys that, that were, were homegrown, 
or at least we're at the core of it. So uh, you still have to have your, your and Mariano Rivera, too, you've you got to have the guys that you brought up at least some, for some consistency, um, it seems to me. Um, I, I'd like to think the Cubs are on a good trajectory now, but who knows? <laughs> uh, who knows? I, I have a lot of faith in Theo Epstein. Um, but, uh, you know, I, and, and actually the Nationals are another team that's done pretty well with that same. I, I'm not saying I wouldn't. I, I think they're doing a good job. But I, I, I think things are changing, too, whether anybody likes it. You know, statistics are king. And um, I, I, I think the, the, the universe is slowly being won over by those numbers. And it's pretty hard to refute. It is indeed. The Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Avitt with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. And Lore, during the season, we always ask our experts here on the Tuesday Tout Edition to talk about facts and flukes. And uh, I'd like to start with somebody that a lot of experts liked coming into the season, Freddie Freeman. And uh, so far, about a $30 value, one uh, 11.25 OPS. Is that validation of all those tout recommendations earlier? Yep, he's really good. Um, he, I, I remember writing about him three or four years ago in the USA Today baseball uh, annual that was coming out that, that he would he and, uh, and and Jason Hayward were both coming coming out and I actually said I liked Freeman even better than I liked Hayward uh, he's you know he's he's the new the new Joey Votto um, and I mean that in a good way Colorado outfielder Charlie Blackman was hitting over 400 as of April 21st and one of just 14 hitters across both leagues with a plus 1,000 OPS and more than 20 at-bats. Charlie Blackman seems like a fluke. He's a journeyman, but is it a fluke and how much of a fluke is it? There's two things that, that kind of pop in my head with, with, with respect to him. One of them is we're talking 400. That's like George Brett, Ted Williams, Rogers Hornsby territory, and I don't... You know, I wish Charlie Blackman well, but he ain't one of those guys. And I also think Chris Shelton, there, you know, I remember how hot Chris Shelton sure. was for about two months, and that was it. Um, and I'm not saying that's it for Charlie Blackman. He, I, I, I think it's totally reasonable that he has a 295 season and hits 15 homers and knocks in 70 runs and that everybody's very pleased with Charlie Blackman. But he's, I'm, I'm sorry, he's not a 350 hitter. I, I just don't see it. I don't see him as a 320 hitter even or a 310 hitter. Well, I was out uh, the other night talking with some friends about baseball, and the, and the, they're not real big fans, just casual fans, and, and we got to talking about Charlie Blackman, and, and they said, uh, one of them said sort of rhetorically, why couldn't Charlie Blackman all of a sudden be a 400 hitter? And my response to him was, you know, Major League Baseball is really good at finding 400 hitters. And if he was a 400 hitter and they just missed him year after year after year, it just beggars belief. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when was the last time anybody even hit 400? <laughs> it's really hard to do. <laughs> and he never did it in, uh, at any minor league level uh, uh, on any kind of sustained basis either. So I, I definitely think he's a fluke uh, as well. Uh, Justin Upton is also around the $30 mark. Uh, Laura, is is this the long-awaited rebound or of an effect, or is it just a short-run fluke again? I, I think Justin Upton is very good and very talented. I don't think he'll ever be as good as we thought he would be. Um, I think he, if, if memory serves, he started off just as hot last year. So I think this is just his trend. Yeah, and he had one big year right at the, around the start of his career, and uh, kind of everybody's been waiting for it to come back, and it's starting to look more and more like that one big year was kind of one big fluke. Uh, yeah, that was the fluke, right. Pittsburgh second baseman uh, Neil Walker is also off to a hot start. He's got six home runs already. He's batting 
275 is good for the mid $20 range. Is Neil Walker a fact or a fluke? Um, I think Neil Walker is a fact. Uh, Neil Walker is, is he's, he's sort of like Mark Burley. He doesn't get a lot of respect, and he, maybe he's kind of dull, but uh, but he I think he he's I think his career average is right around 270. He generally hits about 12 to 15 homers. Um, I, I you know and it's, he's had what four or five years in the bigs. I I don't see why he couldn't step it up or have a career year. I I, I think he's for real. Cincinnati catcher Devin Mazarako has three early home runs and a batting average over 500. All right, I'll I'll give you that. That's a fluke. But what chances there are that a guy like Devin Mazarako, who hasn't really been much of a fantasy contributor through his career, could hold on to this hot start and be at least somewhat valuable for the whole season? I I think they're pretty good. He was. He was always, I thought, a nice prospect, and you know, catchers catchers tend to mature later as hitters than than, than other than their counterparts, their position counterparts, and and that's because catching and calling the ball game is is the primary prime directive, and then hitting is secondary. So, and you know, I think of like Deion Navarro, who was supposed to be hot stuff five years ago, or you think Mike Stanley, Mickey Tattleton. There's a there's a pretty good. Uh, lineage of catchers who just just kind of didn't hit hit first, and and he also has Mizrasko has such a delicious name. I think John Miller one time noted that oh, a name like Devin Mizrasko that should be a villain in a noir film. <laughs> so you got to kind of like that. We talked a moment ago about Tampa being a good organization at picking up castoffs and and identifying value like Oakland. Uh, David DeJesus is one of those guys, a reliable fantasy player, $10 every year, year in, year out, 9 or 10 homers, 9 or 10 steals, 270 and 60 RBIs. This year he's 119 to start the season and no counting stats, not a home run, not an RBI, not a stolen base. It's a pretty serious collapse, but is it a fact or a fluke? I think it's a fact. I, I saw a lot of him in Oakland. And you know he he played out here, and actually he kind of resurrected himself. But I, I, I you know he was a very good the player that you suggested for the first few years of his career. But I think he did all right last year with the Cubs. But for the most part, I don't think he's been any anything better than a fifth outfielder in the deep league for a couple of years. Also in Tampa, another outfielder they picked up, Logan Forsythe. Also no counting stats, and he's hitting 163. Same situation here. Thought he would be better. Um, I thought he would have, you know, kind of reminds me of the other Logan Morrison that I thought both of those guys would have kind of come through by now. Um, and you know, I mean, I do think there are those Marlin Bird guys that they're supposed to be good. They're supposed to be good. We forget about them, and then all of a sudden, eight years later, they do become good. And and everybody has a good year in them somewhere. You know, Rob Wilfong did hit 300 once. So, but I, for the most part, I think we're we're just seeing what they, he really is. In your neck of the woods, Derek Barton of the Athletics has never really lived up to his potential, especially as a fantasy player. But this year, he's been especially shaky. He's hitting around 150. Uh, last time I checked, he had one RBI in the counting stats department. Is it time to give up on Derek Barton? I I, I had hoped not. I actually wrote um, in a, in a, in Rotoman's magazine. He was one of my sleeper picks, and he he you know he did become kind of a complacent hitter. But when he came back last, he came up for uh, for the, the the pennant run last year, and he looked different. He was much more aggressive. Uh, he hit three homers over a hundred at bats, which was more than he hit in his previous four hundred at bats. And he, he, he's really good defensively. So I thought I thought he had come back, but now he seems to have slipped back. And I would not be surprised um, within another few weeks if he doesn't pick it up that he's 
He goes back down and Stephen Vogt comes up. On the other side of the bay, Pablo Sandoval of the Giants has a couple of home runs, but only six RBIs and he's hitting 160 or so. Is that a fact or a fluke for Pablo Sandoval? I think that's a fluke. Uh, Pablo's, Pablo's had his ups and downs, but he's, he's generally been a pretty consistent hitter. He, uh, he is a free swinger. I always thought of him sort of Vladdy Guerrero light because he swings at a lot of what look like bad pitches and makes things happen out of them. But I see no reason to think that he's, uh, and again, like anybody can have a good season, anybody can have a bad season, but I, 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 think, I think if you dump Pablo now, you're giving your league mates a chance at his good numbers. And as we approach the end of April, uh, Blue Jays slugger Edwin Encarnacion finally just hit his first home run the other day. Uh, we talked earlier about exercising patience, so let's use uh, Encarnacion as the poster boy. How do you uh, how do you look at a guy who's ha- only managed one home run in a month, and ask yourself if his slow start is a harbinger of an actual factual down year? But I think this sort of leans back to what I was saying about Prince Fielder. That I I think you know he was a. a a pre, uh, E5 is a, a premium player, and I think you have to, I think you have to ride him out. I, I, you know, and power hitters can be streaky. I, I don't think it's a harbinger, but I, I would be cautious, and I, I would stick with him. You know, you, he's probably a core member of your team if you have him. So. Yeah, I think a lot of times uh, it's almost a theoretical exercise to ask because, you know, what are you going to do, drop Edwin Encarnacion and pick up uh, some some guy who's loitering around in your free agent pool who's not even playing? I mean, you're kind of stuck with him unless you can make a trade. And then, like you said, oftentimes you're trading away the, the good stuff to come because you're tired of the bad stuff that already happened and it's on your roster either way. Uh, let's look at some pitchers, Lore. Through his first four starts, you talked about Mark Beerley of the Jays. He's 4-0. and He's got an 0-64 ERA, a 0-9-3 whip. That's really something. Uh, but let me turn the tables on this patience issue. At what point do you look at a guy like Mark Beerley, assume that this is some kind of outlier based on the last couple of years, and then uh, decide that you're either going to uh, drop him or trade him or get rid of him while the getting's good? I don't know. I, I think I, I, Mark Beerley is, to me, the Rodney Dangerfield of pitchers. He, I think, has never... In the last 13 years, thrown less than 200 innings. His WHIP has been 1.27. His ERA has been in the high threes. He wins averages like 12 or 13 games, and that you know that's pretty good. We we have a tendency to look down our nose because he only strikes out 140 guys over his 200 innings. But for a third or fourth starter, that's exactly the kind of stability you want. And I I I would grab him. I would stick him in my fourth slot and just be, think, okay, every once in a while he's going to get clobbered, but he's going to give me my 200 innings. He's going to get, you know, get a, uh, for every nine innings he pitches, he's going to get me five strikeouts, and he's going to have a decent whip, and thank you very much, Mark Burley. Living in the Bay Area, you have doubtless had a chance to watch Tim Hudson pitch for the Giants this year, and he's been pitching great. 240 ERA, a 0.77 whip, and through his first 30 innings, he hadn't walked a single batter. Now, Tim Hudson is 38 years old, so is this what looks like a rebound, a fact, or a fluke? I think, I think he's one of those guys that just can pitch no matter what, no matter where, and I think with age, he has refined his craft, and he just has very good command, and I think, you know, he is 38 years old, and I think it's a fact. <laughs> He's just good. 
How about Jesse Chavez over in Oakland, a career minor leaguer? The uh, A's were pretty much forced to throw him in there because of the injuries that you mentioned. He's had four starts, all quality starts. He's got a 138 ERA. His whip is under one as well. And 28 strikeouts in 26 innings, which is really getting the job done. This is a feel-good story, but is it a fact or a fluke? I've, since I have him on virtually every team, I, I hope it's a fact. Um, I would not be surprised for th- for his universe to kind of level out. But again, for a guy like that to win 12 or 13 games, to have an ERA of 3.5 and, and a whip of 1.28 if he pitches 160 innings, that's like a gift because he is probably a reserve pick in most leagues. So I'd be, I'd be nervous about picking him up now just because as the weather gets warmer, yeah, chances in hitters get hotter, chances are things that, you know, the greater the percentage of things will level out for him. But if you picked him up, I, and I'm, I would, might consider trading him pretty soon because his value will never go higher. But uh, I, I, I like the guy. He's a good story, and he certainly has learned how to pitch. And how about some graybeard closers? Francisco Rodriguez leads Major League Baseball. He has eight saves. John Axford has seven coming out of nowhere. Latroy Hawkins even has five in Colorado. And he's like 75 years old. Which of these is a fact and which are flukes, do you think? Uh, I, I hate to say they all seem kind of like flat flukes, but, I, I, you know, closer gets weirder every year, it seems like, and this year takes the cake. Um, you know, I think they're all flukes on one hand. On the other hand, I would be happy to have any of them. <laughs> so yeah, it's, that's true. It's, it's really tough. I, I, uh, but, you know, once you kind of have a closer job, it's for the most part, once you've picked up your 10, 12 saves and established yourself, it's pretty hard to lose that job during the course of the season, so I would stick with all of them. Uh, Luke Gregerson looked pretty bad again the other night. Uh, any chance Jim Johnson is on the way back on any kind of regular basis? It could be. You know, I was a, I'm a big Gregerson fan. In fact, I, I, I had him pegged as the closer should um, Johnson fail, but it, his, he's just having trouble locating his slider, so a, a lot of his issue is command for Gregerson, but yeah, obviously Oakland cannot afford to give games away. Nobody can afford to give games away. Especially in that division. A couple of pitching underperformers I wanted to ask you about. Coming into the year, some touts had cautious optimism about Tim Lincecum of the Giants, but he seems to have picked up right where he left off last year, and maybe even worse. One quality start in four tries, a 643 RA, 148 whip. It's a disaster. But his skills look very solid, Lore. Except for a 2.2 home run per nine, his skills look great. So is the gopheritis a correctable fluke, or is this lamentable start a fact for the former Cy Young winner? I think it's correctable, but I think Timmy is one of those guys that this is what I do, this is how I got here, and he's having difficulty adjusting around his splitter, which was always his out pitch and which people bought at, and, and which people will now they'll sit on his fastball and... I think that's why he's given up the home run. So unless unless he figures unless he learns a bunch of stuff from Tim Hudson, I would expect things to continue. Also in the Bay Area, we talked about Jesse Chavez. Uh, the A's must have been counting on Tommy Malone after their off-season pitching injuries, but he's been a stinker to the tune of a 155 uh, WHIP, a 409 ERA. Uh, is this poor performance by Tommy Malone a fact or a fluke with some turnaround potential? He's just not that good. He's sort of. Uh, you know, he, he he's not a dominant, Malone's not a dominant guy. He's he's a control guy. He's he's Mark Burley without the attitude. Um, and you know, he's it's a lot more to me like Kirk Reeder, uh, who did have a successful career. I don't mean that as a knock on Reeder, but Malone's just not a tricky pitcher. 
he, you know, and, and he's hittable, and I just think he's one of those guys. He, he, in the old days, back, back, back when we were kids, he would have been a middle reliever and been cannon fodder, and I think that's, that's his level, whether we like it or not. And has Father Time finally caught up with ex-athletic st- star Bartolo Colon, 541-48? Is that a fact or a fluke? I think that's a fact. Yeah, he was great last year. I think that was his last hurrah. And finally, R.A. Dickey is 626 ERA, 165 whip for 2014, and just one quality start in four tries. Is this a fluke that's going to turn around at some point, or is it a fact based on last year that we all just need to knuckle under? Uh, you know, knuckleball guys, I mean, look at Tim Wakefield. They could have a good year and a down year and a good year and a down year. It's really hard to, it's really hard to surmise and, and, but, uh, or really hard to get a feel. I just think, I, I don't think he'll ever be as good as this uh, young year. And I think, I mean, I think he's a 200-inning guy, but I think expecting more than a 4 ERA and maybe a whip around 1-3, is is just impractical for a guy that's a knuckleballer. You know they're going to have their good game. They're going to like anybody else. They're going to get whacked. Sometimes then it isn't because the ball isn't going to knuckle and they're going to get clobbered and they're going to give up walks. And sometimes it'll work like a charm. But I think Wakefield is a good good barometer of of R. A. Dickey. Laura, this has been great. Tell us where listeners can read more of your work. Well, they can definitely read me uh, every Monday and every Friday at MastersBall.com. They can check me out on Tuesdays at KFFL. On Thursdays, I write about the minors uh, at the USA Today. And every other Sunday, I write at ShandlerPark.com. And also, of course, I can't, I can't let music go. If you're interested in the music side of me, Peter Kreutzer, uh, Gene McCaffrey, and Steve Moyer, uh, you can go to RockRemnants.com because we're always commenting on something. And I know we always count on you to recommend a cool tune. What are you listening to these days that you think we should be listening to as well? Well, I've been into Johnny Cash's Unchained album where he's backed by the Heartbreakers, um, and I'm really crazy about uh, his cover of uh, Don Gibson's Sea of Heartbreak there. I've been listening to a lot of Led Zepp for some reason, uh, very much into uh, Down by the Seaside and Ten Years Gone from Physical Graffiti, and also been really listening a lot to the drum bass interplay and Dazed and Confused. I really like that. Um, Alice Cooper, his Love It to Death album, that's a, just maybe they're the greatest garage band ever. And the bass line, I've been playing a lot of bass lately, and uh, the bass line in uh, the song uh, Long Way to Go is just, just great. And I'm really stuck on that for some reason. And then finally, um, my, my good buddy drummer Jeremy uh, Steinkohler, he has one of the most interesting band configurations ever, his band Mofone, and they're very well-known in jazz circles. They're sort of a jazz-funk fusion. Um, but uh, Jeremy plays the drums, and he has Jim Peterson and Larry De La Cruz. So it's drums and two saxophones. And they just came out with a new album called Phonology that I've been giving spins to. And they're, they're, they're very interesting uh, and, and have a really big sound for, for just three guys and basically two instruments. Or, uh, so those, those are the things that are peaked me lately. All right, Laura, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again during the season. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you.
from the new CD, Phonology. That's No Nugget, a very cool tune from the San Francisco jazz-funk trio Mophone, recommended for us this week by our Tuesday tout expert, Lore Michaels. Lore writes for MastersBall.com, ChandlerPark.com, KFFL.com, USA Today, and others, and he's a favorite guest here on the show. When we come back, our regular HQ commentaries, the Metric Minute and Minor League Minute, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler. We're opening the gates on April 28th for our May games at ChandlerPark.com. Entry deadline is May 4th, with games starting at just 9 bucks. Monthly fantasy baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Dan Becker's Buyer's Guide looks at stolen base surgers. Pete Sheridan has a review of April Challenge Game Indicators. Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide looks at early surprises. And we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes performance validation, other Buyer's Guides, divisional outlooks, and much more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners right now and in the coming days at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our regular Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon standing by on deck with the Minor League Minute and leading off the Metric Minute. And here to tell us about hit percentage for pitchers is analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week's Metric Minute will take a look at hit rate, or also known as BABIP in many circles. This week we'll focus on how hit rate is applied to pitchers. Hit rate is simply the percentage of balls that are hit into the field of play that fall for hits, with the exception of of home runs, which are always hits. Uh, The league average hit rate across baseball typically rests at 30%, so 30% of the balls in play typically fall for hits. Any hit rates above 30% means the pitcher saw more of his balls uh, put in play fall for hits, which can negatively affect the pitcher's whip, ERA, and whatnot. Same goes for low hit rates, though they positively affect pitchers' ERA and whip, maybe even the win total. So we can look at this hit rate statistic and see if a pitcher's been getting lucky or unlucky for in-season valuations. Research has shown that hit rate doesn't really correlate year to year, like some of our traditional skills-based measures, so we can expect hit rate to regress to its mean. Research has also shown you can actually better predict a pitcher's hit rate from the rest of his own team than from the pitcher himself. So this helps account for shifts, ballparks, etc. Some of the lowest hit rates for pitchers through the, the early starts of April thus far, a couple guys with very low hit rates are Jason Hamill with the Cubs, has a 13% hit rate through his first four starts. Johnny Cueto has a 17% mark through his first five games. So look for these whips and ERAs to rise as that hit rate stabilizes over time. 
On the flip side, a few aces have been unlucky early on. Should see better results. Madison Bumgarner has a 42% hit rate through five starts. Homer Bailey has 43% through his first four. So look for improvement from those two, again, as hit rate stabilizes as we go on. So keep hit rate in mind when evaluating pitcher performance to get an idea of whether or not ERA and WHIP are expected to rise or fall. Next week, we'll take a look at hit rate and how it applies to hitters, which is a little different than how we use it for pitchers. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the site and talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Dodgers pitching prospect Zach Lee, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take a look at the Los Angeles Dodgers top pitching prospect Zach Lee. The former first-rounder has good athleticism, and in high school he was recruited to play quarterback at LSU. When drafted, Lee's fastball reached into the mid-90s, but since then he's lost some velocity, and he now sits at 89-92 on most nights. Lee compensates for that drop in velocity by locating his fastball really well and getting good late sinking action. He keeps the ball down in the zone and does some plenty of ground ball outs, and complements the fastball with an average slider, a changeup, and a slow curveball. All have average potential, but none really project as a true swing and miss pitch. The upshot is that while Zach Lee still has solid stuff, he now profiles more as a mid-rotation starter than when he was first drafted. Lee works both sides of the plate really effectively, and because of his clean, repeatable mechanics, solid frame, and athleticism, he should develop into an innings eater while limiting the damage. Last year, Zach Lee put up solid numbers at Double H Chattanooga, going 10-10 and with a 3.22 ERA. He walked 35 and struck out 131, while limiting opposing batters to a 247 batting average against. For now, Zach Lee really isn't an option in mixed formats, but he does have good potential in deeper NL-only keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports have looked at Dodgers utility infielder Carlos Tranfell. I remember when he was a top prospect. Pittsburgh right-hander Casey Sadler and others. And you also want to check the minor league watch list, highlighting less heralded prospects who seem to have a path to the majors. This week, the report looks at Texas catcher first baseman Brett Nicholas, San Diego speed merchant outfielder Rico Noel, Detroit shortstop Eugenio Suarez, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for April 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Edition. The Fantasy Baseball Zen Master Lore Michaels is always one of our favorite guests on the show, and we do like his musical contributions, especially this one this time. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator, and Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon had the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll have a research piece on the site coming up, following up on my recent article looking at where saves come from by team. 
and this time I'll be looking for the effect of dominant closers on team save rates. Also, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. We have a lot of fun there, and we exchange a lot of really terrific information. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Also, feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick David. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our news and notes show following League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be one of the most successful team players in fantasy baseball and a lawyer who has done a lot to help the game as well. Glenn Colton next Tuesday on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>